Good morning, everybody. If you have your Bibles, we're going to continue through our study of the book of Ephesians this morning, and we are going to be in, oh yeah, I'm supposed to help you with that, Ephesians chapter 2. Um, we're going to be unpacking the first 10 verses, and, and truly these verses um, hopefully are, uh, you, you hear them and you can almost like recite them because they are encouraging words. Uh, this is easily one of the top scriptures that I reference, whether I'm trying to understand, um, even needing to go back and to reflect on God's goodness to me or his kindness to me, or the life that I now live, or the life that I used to live apart from Christ, and what did that mean, and what does that look like? Um, this text really does a great job of, uh, of helping us understand that, and I'll, I'll argue this quite strongly, and whenever I deal with particularly the book of Ephesians, I keep coming back to this because God's word is designed by his own intent. So God's um, authoral, his, his, uh, as, as author, his authorial intent is to give us information that if he hadn't given us, you and I probably could have not figured it out on our own. And I think it's important that we admit that, that we acknowledge that, that God, thank you for telling that about me or about my circumstances, because I'm not, um, I'm not smart enough. It, it's not something that can be solved with intellect. Um, God, this isn't something that even collectively as a society, again, think of all the, like, those superhero movies, and whenever there's a problem or a difficulty or an adversary that's great, all we really need to do is come together. That's all we really need to do is just come together. And if we just come together, um, then we die together? Like this is the problem is that we sometimes believe that if we just, and I want to ask this question, like is that what the Bible says? Is that what the Bible teaches? If we just come together, then we can yeah, I don't know. I, I know what society teaches me. I know what I want to be true. But the Bible comes and says, you need, this is God's word, this is why we need revelation, that God says, I'm going to speak truth that you could not have understand, that is, it, is even, it is even difficult for you to admit to yourself and to others, and I would say it's very, very true. As we unpack this text today, I would just ask you this question, what Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 says is that what you have been constantly told about yourself? The Apostle Paul, in this letter to the Ephesians, a church that he helped establish, so these people are living out their faith because the Apostle Paul preached the gospel to them. They accepted, I believe by the transformation and power of the Holy Spirit, they repented and they accepted the good news and then they began in a different trajectory. They began to move in a different way. They, they began to live differently. Verse 10, um, that you are now this new workmanship that God created for you to be and to do, like this new transformed life. And the Apostle Paul is writing this church saying, I need to remind you of what you once were and what you now are. And that phrase is going to appear a number of times. Be looking for that. The book of Ephesians challenges what we once were and it encourages us to believe in who we now are. That's why last week, chapter one, I want you to sit there and I want you to hear this morning. I want you to receive. Don't worry about how to apply this to your life right now. I just want you to know who God is 
And I want you to trust as you bring in all you think that you are. This is what the Word of God informs us in terms of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. We're predestined and we're chosen to be adopted as children. And we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that now lives in us. Yeah, but I don't feel it. Okay, but you have it. Yeah, but I'm not feeling it. I know, but you are. And and that's what this section I would argue the first three chapters are really designed to do is to reshape our understanding, our perspective of who God is, who we are, and the amazing difference between the two. And Paul, with the most stark contrast, says this, you once were dead, verses one through three, but now you are alive. You once were dead, but now you are alive. Do you feel that? If I'm going to be honest, I'm just going to tell you, I grew up in a strong Christian home. Like my dad and mom were first generation believers. Like they, they were dead, like really, really dead. And then they heard the gospel and they accepted the gospel. But I kind of grew up in a house where I don't know if I was dead, like I might have been sick. But I don't know if I really kind of felt myself as being dead after all. And, and by the way, my mom kind of created part of this problem because whenever I would talk, my mom would say to me, now, Jim, Jimmy, you need to be a good boy. Remember to be a good boy. And she would even tell me I'm a good boy. And, and, and so that was kind of the paradigm that we had in our house. Like very seldom did my parents ever remind me if we're not having like a Bible, you are dead in your sins, James Allen. Like it wasn't that. They never really had that conversation. It was like, well, no, you're, you're a Johnson, and this is what it means to be a Johnson, and, and I want you to be a good boy. And hear me, I'm not I'm complaining about my parents' upbringing, but if I just stop and look, like, how comfortable are you explaining to someone that they are dead in their sins, far from God, without hope in the world? That's like the rest of Ephesians 2. I just, man, alive, that's not going to sell. How are we going to sell that? How are we going to get people to believe that? After all, like, I'm okay, you're okay. I mean, this whole mindset is fundamentally different. How do we deal with this? And the Apostle Paul comes in and says, I want to speak some difficult truth that I want you to hear. And I, I need you to just sit there. And you're going to even feel at moments like this, this doesn't seem real to me. Um, I, I have friends, and when they're trying to share the gospel with someone else, and I'm so glad they are, and I'm more than glad to help, but they don't need my help. They have the Holy Spirit. They have the words of truth. And so I'm more than glad to kind of join in the conversation, but I love hearing that they're sharing the gospel. But it's amazing how many times they refer to their friends like this. They're really, really good people. They really are. They're great. Oh, man, you got to meet them. They are just, they are the neatest couple ever. They're phenomenal. Um, and then I, I kind of want, I get what they're saying, but I kind of want to say, well, then they don't need Jesus. Well, oh, no, 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 they still really, really need Jesus. Hear me. I get what they're saying, but that does, does, does that not betray a little bit of like what we really think about what we really believe? I'm not arguing that you need to run around and stand on the street corner and just condemn. I really am not, even though that's what most of the people did here. I, I'm just saying that I think that's one of the reasons why this text really just doesn't come to life for you. Is because if you're like our staff, the majority in staff meeting on Monday, I asked, how many of you, like, 
remember coming to the Lord and the death and the brokenness of your previous life and then the resurrection and the new life that you have. And about three or four people said, like, I I remember that. And the rest of us kind of went, yeah, the rest of us were raised by good Christian parents that take us to church. And I'm grateful. I truly am. I'm grateful for what my mom and dad rescued me from and some pain that I did not necessarily need to experience. I'm grateful for that. But do any of you just kind of look enviously upon those people that have kind of one of those like, you once were, but now you are kind of experiences? I do. I do. This morning, I want to use something from history to help maybe explain, help us understand what the Apostle Paul is getting at. Um, And do not Google this. I'm serious. I'll take away your phone. You cannot Google. You can chew gum, but you cannot Google right now. How many of you have heard of the Gordian Knot? Any of you know about the Gordian Knot? Okay, so some of you know about it. Um, Don't don't tell your neighbor. Just let let it just sit. There is something in um, mythological history known as the Gordian Knot. Um, It comes from a story, a myth, uh, an oracle that happened in the city of Gordium. But once there was not a city called Gordium, I don't even know the, 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 the name of the city. They don't even know historically the name of the city before that. But there was this small little city in the province of Phrygia, which is in Turkey. So if you would think about like where the Apostle Paul goes on his first missionary journey, it's kind of in that particular area. So in modern day Turkey, in then known as Asia Minor, this would be in the second millennia BC. There was an oracle, think of the matrix, right? Remember the oracle? There was an oracle that said, there will be a man and he will enter into the town with an ox cart and he will tie that ox cart up and everything is going to change because of this man. And in walks a man named Gordius. Now, do you know why the city was called Gordium or Gordium? And he comes in with his ox cart. And when he comes in, everybody's like, we should name the city after him. Now, truly, a poor farmer. The guy has no fame or fortune, but he takes his ox cart, and there's a post, and he takes his ox cart, and he ties the two together, and he ties it up in such a way with an intricate series of knots as to so that this ox cart could never be untied. And, and then he goes on to say, whoever can untie this ox cart to this post, will be the one who will conquer Asia. And then I don't know if he went, but it sounds like it, right, in history. Whoever can untie this cart from this post will truly go on to conquer Asia. Okay, so this, we don't know when this happened. Um, you, you might know, so that's Gordius. His son's name was Midas, which you may know the story about King Midas, who everything he touched turned to gold. He became rich and famous. He was the king of Gordium. Gordium. And that knot stood, and so did the cart and the post. And every once in a while, some young upstart who believed that they could figure out a way to conquer Asia would come up, and they would try to untie the knot. And they would work at it, and work at it, and work at it, and in the end, it was just so tightly woven, so intricately connected that they couldn't do it and they would give up. Reportedly, according to this legend, it literally lasts there for over a thousand years. Thousand years, imagine. Like, I know what you're thinking. Wouldn't the rot, or wouldn't the the cord just kind of rot away? 
don't ruin the story. Okay? It's not a Bible story where it's got like a real historical referent. This is a myth. This is a, this is a legend. And it helps us understand this. And, and I, I don't know if you see where I'm going with this, but it can be helpful for me. I was, when I heard the story, and actually I'm, I'm going to give full credit to this. I knew the story, but it was actually, um, I have an intern working with me this summer. And uh, his name is Alex. He's actually preaching in the family service. And when we were kind of just going over how we were going to do the sermon, he said, we should use the Gordian knot as kind of the illustration. And I just went, dude, that's, I think it's great. So thank you, Alex, for reminding me of this incredible story. So here's what I want to do with the story. Will you work with me on this? I want to say, okay, so there's a cart. I don't know if I care about carts. And it's tied to a post. I don't really care about the post. And it's actually happening in Gordium. I don't even know where that, well, I know where it is on the map, but I've never been there. And so I don't know if it matters. But you know what? This really reminds me of me. I'm the cart. And I'm the one that, according to this text, has been tied to something. I'm the one that is stuck. And what this text says is that sin and the effects of sin and the judgment of sin are going to continue to hold me there and to bind me there. And I think that's pretty true. I think the more that I think about it, that yeah, this is, this is exactly what my life can feel like sometimes. And I'm stuck. That's what the text says. The text says you're stuck. Actually, the text says what? You're more than stuck. You're dead. Like you can't do anything then. That's, that's the degree that the Apostle Paul wants the Ephesians to understand in terms of their helplessness. Because what you're thinking is, oh yeah, you know, yeah, I've got some problems. I've got some difficulties. The Apostle Paul says, without Christ, we are, in fact, dead. And then when I begin to think about, like, sin and the effects of sin, and when I think about my own life, it, the, the hole gets kind of deep pretty quickly. I begin to realize, like, hey, this isn't even all my fault, the world that I came into was already messed up. I was born in 1968. Hard to find a worse time to be born than then. I mean, it was a complicated time. Born into a French-Canadian family. Try working with that. And so I inherited like a bunch of problems and struggles and difficulties. And then I got to admit... I didn't make it any better. Indeed, I, I spent much of my time trying to work with or to try to untie the knot, and just when I thought I was getting somewhere, found out it was going nowhere. So what do you do? I, I really believe that this, this metaphor or this idea is, is something that we really hang on. Something that we really hang on. Um, I would say both individually as well as societally, educationally, we spend a lot of time trying to look at societal problems, personal problems, family problems, marital problems, okay? And tell me if I'm wrong. I mean, we should study it a little more. We should examine it. So what do we do? We get educated. I wonder what this knot is made up of. I will write a paper about it, not making. I will teach classes about it, 
not making. I'll even tell stories about how I thought I had it figured out, but I didn't. And we spend time, and I'm going to tweet about it. And I'm going to help you understand your not more. And I'm going to be notish, and you will be notish, and we will understand our notness. Not ever really fixing the problem. Just spend our time examining it, complaining about it, being frustrated with it, but never really getting to the end and sometimes just pulling and pulling and pulling and, and what it might do is just make it worse. So we do, we decide, okay, I'm done talking about it. I got to start working on this. You know what I'm talking about, that relationship where you examine and you examine and you examine and you examine and it really didn't go anywhere and it didn't go anywhere. And so you're working it and you're working it and then you get to this point, do you not? where it seems like working at it just made it worse. Like I really thought that the problem was that I wasn't trying, and so I decided to try, and that didn't work. I can understand why this knot stood there, I know metaphorically, um, symbolically, but just stood there for thousands of years. As... um, Hopeful champion after hopeful champion just tried to figure it out and they just failed and failed and failed and failed and they worked at it and probably just made the whole situation. Have you ever tried to like untie fishing line and then got to the point where you're like, I think I can buy a whole new rod and reel, right? Like I'm just done. So you walk away. You walk away from that relationship. Um, it's really, really cool right now within a lot of Christian circles to like deconvert. And it's done by even pastors, well-known pastors who wrote really profound books about Christian life and about the Christian experience. And, and literally, as I, as I look at their, their journey and as I look at their story, it can almost be described as someone working a knot and working a knot and working a knot and then just going, I can't solve this like that little game that your friends have like on their, like their dining room table and you see it and it's got like some nuts and some bolts and you got to figure out how to get the nut, you know what I mean? And you start, you think you're smarter than it for a while and supper's not ready and so you start working it and then by the time it's done, you've just like, oh, it's a stupid game anyway. Hey, where'd you buy that game? Because I want to, I want to buy it and then just cut it into pieces. I don't want to wreck yours. I mean, It really is. Like, it's this frustration. You just want to walk away from it. And people are walking away from faith. Why? Because I did everything that I could. Don't tell me I wasn't serious with my faith. I went to church. I read my Bible. I have a degree, you know, in theology. I get it. You walk away. Others have decided they're they're not going to do that. They're going to just keep busy and try to pretend the knot doesn't exist. Um, I I, I couldn't find where I got this original statement from, but it was really insightful. Um, It basically was, uh, was, I can't, I, I need to find where it came from, but it basically said this, that one of the most common ways that we avoid dealing with problems in our life, problems with God, problems with one another, is that we get religious or we go to church. They say church becomes one of those places where we can learn to feel good about ourselves with ever really having to deal with our sin. And so in the end, you come to church for your theological spanking and you walk away feeling good about feeling bad, but nothing ever really changes. 
You've never, you've never really come to grips with the fact that you are dead. You're dead without the work of Jesus Christ. You're dead without the empower, the life-giving work of the Spirit. You are dead and you are helpless. You are trapped. You are bound. You are enslaved to sin. And you still sit, verses 1 through 3, under its judgment and, con- judgment and condemnation. And so we try to shut it out by keeping busy. Um, I, re- I remember genuinely believing, and I still have to remind myself, like, I, I, I don't have it in me. Like, I don't have the ability to do this. But many times I've tried to win people over to a loving relationship with Jim. I remember working at a church in Illinois and just believing that, man, we could really, like, change this town if we just showed them Christ's love. And Andrea, um, if you could have a pot roast ready, if we could just have them over to the house and, and they'll just see us and our love for one another and we'll invite other friends over and they'll just want to be a part of it. By the way, I believe what I'm describing there are much of the good works that the Apostle Paul talks about in verse 10. But my goodness and my kindness, I would even argue that the Bible does not teach that my salt and that my light as I bear witness to Christ, does not, like, give life to others. I I think many Christians believe it does. You believe that if you're good and kind, then you can win people. That's why you ask me when you come and you want to talk to me, what am I not doing right because she's not buying it? I'm sharing and giving my heart out, and it's it's not winning her. What am I doing wrong? Hmm. Oh, you think you're a life giver. Like you think like she's sick and she just needs like some medication. No, she's dead. And only Jesus can give her life. So we can't just walk away from it. We can't pretend it's not there. How about if we make it look pretty? This is what happens sometimes, is that we just decide we don't want to call it sin anymore. Have you noticed that? Even the word sin is so archaic, I think we can make it look pretty. I'm not good at bows, by the way. Doesn't that just look better? Sin. See, that's your problem. That is so old school. And and by the way, I'm talking about Christian church people. And I'm just going to kind of dress it up. Um, And then in the the year, I want to go back to my story. And then in the year 300, um, there's a gentleman by the name of Alexander the Great that walks into the city of Gordium and knows the story of this incredible knot. And I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm kind of wishing that the uh, rope was a little more taut right now. But Alexander asks this question, what, what do I need to do? Untie the knot? And he tries to untie the knot. And then the knot um, just gets more and more complicated. And so Alexander does what Alexander knows to do, and he just, pray for me, he just takes his sword out and he slices it. And he says, it does not matter how. (laughs) 
the cart is separated from the post. He takes his sword, throws it back in the sheet. Is that not cool? It does not matter how. Now, I love that illustration. Um, and if you just want to do something simple like conquer Asia, which he did, then a sword would work, Alexander. That's actually how you conquered Asia. Problem is, uh, back in my real world, <laughs> doesn't help me. Every illustration falls. I love this, actually. Every illustration really does fall. Because I, I don't need some, some brave, uh, <laughs> uh, bold, I need someone that can give life to something that is dead. Do you see the difference? Here's how the story of the Gordian Knot, kind of the, what is the, the, the moral of it? It's this, that a decisive solution is needed to a seemingly insurmountable problem. Notice how it's even described. A decisive solution to a seemingly insurmountable problem. Others have described this, the struggle of the Gordian Knot and Alexander's quick and decisive victory is an approach, Alexander's approach, right, that renders the perceived constraints moot. He, he sees the problem and goes, you're not seeing it right, and it's his ingenuity, it's his creativity that solves the problem. Okay, we're impressed, Alexander. Here's my problem, Alexander. I'm dead, and I want new life. That can, can we just appreciate for a moment the, the difficult reality which should hopefully turn into gratitude within us that we were by our very nature, the Apostle Paul says, children of wrath. That for all that my parents gave me or that I inherited through generation after generation of sinful and destructive choices, that when I had my chance, I, I don't have the ability to make it better. And that me pulling on it and me tugging at it, me examining it, really didn't get it very far. Like I needed not a conqueror, I needed a savior. I, I didn't need something like witty. I needed something that was like not from this world, but made this world. I need the one that breathed life into me to breathe life in me again. And that's what the Apostle Paul says. You were dead. Look at verses 1 and 2. Let this sit on us this morning. Truly not to, I'm not saying this so that somehow you will feel bad. I'm saying this is a reality that you may have spent much of your life just skipping over. And I think what gets lost in that is gratitude. What gets lost in that is the fact that there are people who are still dead in their sins, who are still tied up, who are still living under the, the guilt and the shame and the frustration and the brokenness of sin in all of their relationships and ultimately in their relationship with God. And one of the reasons why you and I don't share why you and I have an opinion on everything else that we are glad to share. OU or OSU? Oh yeah? Well, let me talk about that. Mask or no mask? I'll tell you what. You, I, why you're not... Um, you guys know what's happening in November on the election? 
You want to know what I think about that? Have a seat. I got something for you. Can we talk about like just sin in the world? You know, I just, I really think there are some things that uh, are better left. I mean, I, when I, when I, when I had a chance not too long ago, just to kind of take a look and I, I try to use sometimes social media to get a sense of where some of my friends or former students um, or people are at. And I, I know their opinion on everything. Not very much on their opinion about Jesus, but I know their opinion on everything else. And I'm guilty of that too. So don't tell me that you, you don't have opinions about things. Lots of opinions about things. And I genuinely believe that one of the reasons why you and I don't feel the need, the compulsion, to do what salt and light is intended to do, which is not to give life, but to point to the one who does. That's what salt and light is designed to do. To point to the one who does. The reason why we don't do that is because I don't know how much you and I genuinely appreciate the life that we now have in Christ. In the end, I felt like, I feel like I was uneducated and then I got educated. Or I was kind of not feeling very well and I got better. But Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were children under wrath. Look at verse 1 and 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedience. This is what you were. You were dead in your sins and you were walking. That literally, some, some translations translate that word live. It is literally walk. But the way that they would use in that first century, the way they would use the word walk is they would talk about like our way of life. And the Apostle Paul is reminding these Christians from Ephesus that before I came, and, and, and I think he would say, and literally, you need to give thanks to God, not that I showed up because he's the one who sent me. Blessed are the feet that bring the good news of the gospel. But if you had not heard this, you would still be dead. You, you still would not have the life that you now have in Christ. And I, I think that's true for me. I, I think it's good for me to go back and to look at this text and, and not just to wish that maybe, you know, I had lived a kind of a more rebel lifestyle for a while so that I could really, really experience this. No, I don't, I don't think that. But I do think I don't spend enough time being grateful for what Jesus Christ with his clean, intentional, from the beginning of the world, action accomplished for me. I don't even know if I really see who I am as even much different from those around me. And yet the text says, that that's the difference between like being alive and dead. You know the difference, right? Well, yeah, I know the difference. That's the difference. That's what he's, that's what he's getting at here. He's showing them the stark contrast between the lives that they lived and the life that they are now living. In church, I think we need to hear that. I think we need to be reminded of that. And I think we're foolish to somehow dress it up or to just walk away or to pretend that somehow it is not true. And by the way, I, I said this in first service. There was a few more that I could um, uh, 
genuinely be either hopeful for or concerned about. I'm, I'm not really talking to any of you in particular. I, I don't know. I just can't help but believe that there are people right now in this room that are still dead. That are still working through more of like a religious movement or a religious experience than, than truly giving your life to God through Christ. By truly dealing with your sin problem, not by accepting the free gift that we're about to talk about in Jesus Christ, but you're still trying to be a good person. And that's essentially kind of what you're banking on when, when your life comes to an end. And I'm telling you that right now, without who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ accomplished, no matter what your mother told you, no matter what society is telling you, I don't care what your psychology or sociology professor said. I don't care what your preacher told you. I don't care where you heard it. Reality is that the Bible teaches that all of us, therefore you this morning, if you have not given, to your, given your life to God through the work of Jesus Christ, then you are still dead in your sins. But for those of us who have, can I tell you, you are now alive. Did you know that? You are now alive. Look at how he continues. Look at verse 4. We are alive, but God, he says, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us. And again, this points back to what we learned last week. This God who is um, very generous, who lavishes upon us kindness, who gives us freely. This isn't anything that we can manipulate from him. He predestined us for this. He chose us for this. He loves us to this nth degree. It is not out of our lovableness. It is not out of our cuteness. It is not out of our kindness. It is not out of us doing our best and God realizing, well, you know what? You, you, you at least tried. I'll help you the rest of the way. No, we were dead. He made us alive. And why? Because he loved us. I don't know if that's enough for you. This is a phrase that actually um, is, is something that God wanted even the children of Israel to know. When, when God pulled the children of Israel up out of Egypt, and he wants them to know, like, why, and why did you do this, God? God, why did you do this? And he goes on this long explanation in the book of Deuteronomy. He says, describing uh, his relationship, God's love and his desire for Abram, uh, their, their, their forefather. And he said this, I did not call Abram, I did not call you out because you were great, because you were a, a great nation, because you were a great people or a good people. In fact, you weren't great. I chose you because I loved you. I don't know about you. There are days where I want a better reason. There are days where I feel genuinely uncomfortable believing that all of this is completely outside of my control, my ability to manipulate, my ability to, to work out, or my ability to work through. And God says, I know, but I'm telling you, I want you to sit there and to receive my great love, which comes to you out of no compulsion, 
from me, except it's just who I am. And that is the good news of the gospel. Because of God's great love for us, look at verse 5. We have been made alive with Christ. And that kind of that with Christ is a repeated phrase that you're going to see all through the book of Ephesians. He blessed us in the heavenly realms in Christ. He blessed us with Christ. He made us alive with Christ, even though you were dead in your trespasses. And then he says, you are saved by God's gift. You are saved by God's kindness, not out of anything that you could pull, but it is a gift that has been freely given to you. It's the word that we use for its grace. When I've used this story before, but it took on new meaning as I was kind of rethinking about it for, um, for this lesson today. I've done a lot of work trying to help my children understand who they are at multitude, multiple levels. And when my middle son, Mackenzie, came home from college after being there, you know, from August all the way to December, um, probably one of the smartest humans ever to live, at least in his mind. Like, he thought he had it all figured out. And I still remember him going, Dad, I want to I talk with you about some things. I've been thinking about some things. And I'm kind of knowing where this is going because I can think I can remember conversations I had with my dad about this, but... We're sitting on, on, the, on, on our back patio, and we're having this conversation, and Mackenzie says to me, and he's dead serious. That's the part that makes it more enjoyable. He's dead serious. For those of you that know him, you can imagine what this would have been like. And Mackenzie says to me, Dad, I've been thinking. I'm, I'm sure you have, son. What have, what have you been thinking about? I've been thinking about how you have been parenting me and how you've been trying to help me understand um, my identity in Christ. That's, I mean, I'm glad we're having this conversation. I really, really am. And Dad, do you remember back um, when, when, when we were having struggles and I was having struggles and I was making sinful choices? Do you remember that time? Oh, I remember that. I, I, listen, Mackenzie, <laughs> you have no idea how much I remember that time. Your mom still cries spontaneously because of what you did to her. Is that what you want to talk about? He said, yeah, that's what I want to talk about. Because I've been thinking about what you did and I've got some advice for you. It's almost like, should you and mom have any other children? You know, I know Max is like 17, but should you decide to just start having another family? I got some advice for you. He says to me, dead serious. What you should have done, Dad, is you gave me a lot of tips and a lot of techniques. But what you, you probably even learned this from a former student who was a professor of his that I, anyway, that's all, another story. But Mackenzie says, what you should have done, Dad, is you should have sent me to my room and told me to read only the book of Romans and not to come out until I had firmly and squarely understood my identity in Christ. And I tried not to laugh. And I'm thinking to myself, seriously? 16 years old. I mean, you're 18 now. 16 years old. Do you remember? And I... I'm trying to just stay calm. And I'm not even like I'm offended. I just think this is a foolish conversation. I'll tell you, though. You might have been right. I'm not trying to defend myself. I, I, I really did decide that I would try to, you know, how can I, how can I fix this with parenting? I really do think that a lot of what Andy and I, Andrew and I tried to do, kids will be kids. 
right? Like, we all go through that, don't we? Don't we all go through that? I, I really do believe this. I think Andrew and I just spend a lot of time just kind of tightening the rope, not solving the problem. Hear me, I, I, I genuinely believe it's a lot more complicated than sending a 16-year-old to their room telling them to read Romans until they figure it out. I do believe that. But he might have a point, don't you think? Maybe it would have taken three years for him to sit in there to do it. He has a point. And it's that kind of understanding or that belief in this word that helps us even come to terms with, give, with ideas like gift or you're helpless without Christ. This is why I, I genuinely, when, when I share the gospel with someone and then they choose to believe it, and I, I, here's the question I always ask when I'm in a conversation, Mike, so we're in a conversation, and I'm sharing the gospel with you. And as I'm saying it, it sounds like crazy sometimes to me. <laughs> and I'm sharing it, and then I, and I, I have a kind of a, a routine statement that I say, and I, I say, Mike, is there anything right now that is keeping you from accepting this free gift of God's love and mercy and life? Is there anything that's keeping you from that? I ask that question. And, 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 and sometimes someone looks at me and says, no, there's nothing. I'm, I'm ready to receive Christ. And my, my, oh, my gut response is, really? <laughs> really? Okay, what did I, what, can we talk later? Because what did I do that made that work? No. It's a gift. And what does Paul go on to say? So that no one can boast. I can't boast. You know, I'm just, I'm really good at winning people to the Lord. Did you just say that out loud, preacher boy? You know, I'm really, really good at some kind of spiritual, I mean, really? Did you just say that? I love the fact that what the Bible reminds us of and what the Bible teaches us is that this is a complete gift of God. There is absolutely no boasting, and therefore you and I just get to sit and to receive the good news that I'm free. Can I tell you what some of you need to hear today? Because I think you're walking around with this like a necklace, right? And by the way, I genuinely believe that you're even saved, but you're walking around with this. I'm like, why are you walking around with that? Like you're free. Do you know that this morning? Like the power of sin has no power over you. Do you, what I just said, do you believe that? That by the Holy Spirit living in you, you can say no to sin. Do you believe that? Take that as a no? Hopefully a reflective yes. Thank you, whoever said that. I, I thank you, Waylon. And, and I hope that the rest of you, which are just like quiet listeners, um, right now are just feeling the goodness of God's kindness to you this morning. You're free. Like you're alive. 
Take a deep breath in. Don't breathe out because you could infect the person in front of you. But take a deep breath in and then just hold it. Let it out slowly through your nose. Yeah, like that was a gift from God. And so is the new life that you have in Christ. Let me close with this. The Apostle Paul makes some bold statements in his other letters, and I'm just going to read these to you, and they need no commentary in light of what I've already taught. In light of what we've learned, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I live, I live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. To the church in Corinth who knew sin. The Apostle Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Or to the church in Philippi, the Apostle Paul says, for me, to live is Christ, and to die is Christ. It only gets better. Let's pray. God, thank you for your kindness and mercy to us. God, I thank you for even just really fun stories like the Gordian Knot. And as cool as they are, Alexander had no ability to save anyone. And he was one of the greatest conquerors this world has ever seen. It was completely dead before you. And may we take sharp um, awareness of that. And therefore this morning, for those of us who are in Christ, may we enjoy the life that we have, the gratitude that we should be developing, and the appreciation that should continue to grow in us. God, we give you thanks. Father, for those right now that still are, have not come to terms with their sin, or maybe even unaware of their need for Jesus, I pray that by your Spirit, you would make known to them the truth about you and them. Reveal Jesus to them, and may they experience the life that can only come from you, the life giver. And all God's people said...